Welcome to The Mountain Podcast. The Mountain Church is dedicated to helping people love Jesus and the people they encounter every day. Today, you will listen to our most recent Sunday sermon. So sit back, relax, and let Jesus speak to you wherever you may be. And now, this week's sermon. We've been doing basically a Sermon on the Mount series. Uh, It's called Satisfied. um, And it's been this real focus on shifting uh, things in our life especially when it comes to our appetite and our cravings or what we are satisfied with. Uh, Anytime I study the word, anytime that I study uh, the nature of God or my relationship with God, I come into immediate recognition of things that don't line up with the word in my life. Uh, This is a really good place to be. When you read the Bible, you should recognize the things that, that you have a great moment and opportunity right then and there to repent of or to humble yourself before the Lord, uh, the Bible should, in very, in very powerful ways, kind of put a mirror up to your life to allow you to see the disconnects between you and God. How many of you, when you read the Bible, you see those things? Okay, so when you see those things, it's important that you know what to do. That when you read the Bible and you see a, a disconnect between what you want to be or what God's calling you to be and, and who you are right now, Uh, Guilt and shame will not help you become like God. So when guilt and shame are your first and second instincts after recognition, decline them. Decline them. They are not righteousness tools. So decline them for sure, even before you know what the actual right tools are to become like Jesus, you can feel free to say no to guilt and shame. They will not make you like Jesus in any way. You guys cool with that? This is good news. You can say no to guilt and shame. (laughs) Isn't that exciting? And it's important to know in the context of what we're talking about today, which will be in Matthew 5, and then we're going to read verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. Uh, And it's important to know this framework of today is going to be, you got to have a yes and you got to have a no. It's not sufficient to just have a no for long-term maturity, we must have something that we are saying yes to, not just something we're saying no to. No good movement was ever just no. It was also something else. Martin Luther King had a dream. There was a yes in this thing, right? It wasn't just no to racism. It was yes to equality and not seeing a greater quality based on color difference. So the same thing takes place, whether it be a visionary or a movement leader or a national leader or just our personal lives, you got to have a yes to go along with whatever it is you're saying no to. Uh, So in your personal life, this can be seen in that you and I have experienced painful, sinful, broken things around us and in our life, oftentimes in our family or in coaches and leaders. Some of us had uh, addiction that really hurt our families. And so we say something like no to drugs or no to alcohol. But if you really look at what causes true victory and true wholeness, it's not just saying no to drugs. There's got to be a yes that's more profound, that actually defines being rather than just, I'm not going to be an addict. So you've got you've to learn to have a no, but you've also got to identify what your yes is. Are you guys tracking with me this morning? So this is the framework to it. A great scripture for this is submit to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There is a yes to God, a no to the devil, and victory. Sweet. Okay. Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I almost skipped this beatitude, guys. I didn't want to actually preach on it. Like a week and a half ago when I was first starting to study it and pray it out, I was like, I wonder if anyone will notice if I just skipped it. (laughs) Because sadness is, to me and my personality, the worst. If you studied my personality, it's like wherever sadness is, I'm a 3,000-mile road trip away. Uh, I typically, in my natural emotional state, will flee from the appearance of sadness, from the appearance of a sad story, a sad movie. The notebook was a fantastic and horrible movie. I remember the first time I was, re- I was watching it with my wife. We were at a cabin. We were watching it together. And this was before kids. Whew. And uh, I, was, I was weeping on the couch while I was watching. And any guy in here, I'm so sorry. I, I'm going to ruin my image of manliness that I probably never had. Yeah. I was crying so hard it was embarrassing. The only person in the room was my wife, but I was crying so hard. And then the, the, the plot twist at the end was that, you know, they thought and then no. It's not a happy ending. It's a horrible ending. It's so sad. I don't want to ruin it for you, but she can't remember him anymore. (laughs) So I I thought about skipping this whole verse, right? But then I, I didn't, and I leaned into it. I go, God, okay, what's the point of mourning? It doesn't seem like it's a typical Christian value. And I started to think about it. I was like, how often in our church environment do, do we really talk about and amplify mourning? We, we don't. Usually it's kind of the thing we mention in passing. And yet the crazy thing is, and I'm a pastor, so I feel like I have a decent insight to this, is that people are going through situations all of the time, all of the time, that are inviting them to mourn. Any given time in this place, there's like 20 or 30 people in a specific service that are probably going through a mourning period. And mourning isn't something we always do. It's not like you wake up every morning and you mourn no matter what season it is. But mourning is something that is seasonally appropriate. And it is important that we understand in our Christian lifestyle, even though mourning isn't daily for the rest of our life, it is important that we understand how to mourn. It is important that we understand what God's relationship is to us in our place of mourning or sadness. And, I, and when I was first studying this thing out, I was like, maybe mourning is a little bit more profound than what I think it is, but it really wasn't. It was just simply mourning as we understand it to be. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's such an interesting place to go to because you see that in this blessed life, There is a real life, human life experience, which is mourning. There is sadness over death. There is sadness over loss in life that isn't always death-related. Sometimes you mourn a lost friendship, a lost family member. Sometimes you mourn 
chaos and traumatic situations in your life, there is a mourning or there is a sadness that comes upon you and it's important to know what to do with it. And denying it or declining it is not godliness. It is not godliness to say, actually, sadness isn't a thing of God, and I'm not going to be sad, so I'm going to be joyful this morning because joy comes in the morning, and so no sadness. This is not a good Christian habit to learn. This is called denial. This is unhealthy. Even in a scriptural sense, it's important to know, and I'm going to bring you to James 4, 8 through 10. And the, the, in verse 9, you see, and I'm going to read the whole context of it so we can understand what this relationship with God looks like in a time of mourning. In verse 9, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to go to 8, and then 9 and 10. It says, grieve, mourn, and weep. Turn your laughter into mourning and your joy into despair. It is not, it is not a really profound Christian thing to make sadness or mourning illegal. Just because there's joy in Jesus doesn't mean that there isn't also an expression or a season of mourning where God doesn't also show himself to be very present and real in that time of mourning. So if you only know God in a state of joy and you don't know him in a state of mourning, you don't know a full perspective of God. Here's the thing. God is incredibly vast and diverse in his different, uh, different parts. He's always the same yesterday, today, and forever. But there's a whole lot of God to learn about. A whole lot. So there's the God that you understand and know in a time of joy and victory. Yay, we did it. Yay, awesome, happy birthday moment in my life. But there's also a tremendous amount of value or revelation of God that can only be found when you embrace a relational partnership with God in a time of mourning. You'll get to see a different part of God when you allow yourself to mourn with God. You'll get to see a comfort of God that you wouldn't get to see and experience if you didn't understand. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's a promise in this. There's a promise in understanding, and there's a promise in mourning that if you will walk this out with God, you will be comforted. Don't run from it. Don't hide from it. Allow God to meet you in a time of mourning and sadness. Allow him to meet you in a place of grief, in deep, deep pain and despair. <clears throat> Verse 8 says, in James 4, 8, it says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and make your hearts pure, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and weep. Turn your laughter into mourning and your joy into despair. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. This scripture, when you look at the whole context of it, it's not just a handbook for how to grieve after a funeral. It's not just a handbook for understanding mourning that comes in a place of death, although it can be incredibly helpful. It's actually speaking to the Christian lifestyle. So as you're walking things out, you got to understand there's a part of victory or godliness 
that can only be accessed through these places of mourning, of humility, and of cleansing of the hands. Like there is a remorsefulness, there's a contrition, there's even a sadness that comes when you recognize how dirty your hands are. Have you ever had this happen with God? You're spending time with him, you're all jovial and happy, and you're walking along, even skipping along the road with God, and then you all of a sudden see your hands and you're like, I am filthy. And then you get sad. You get sad because you're not as far along as you thought you were. You're not as good as you thought you were. And you've almost lost your credence and your strength to hate others for their dirtiness because you realize you're also dirty. It's like Jesus is like, sure, you can stone her, but, but only if you have no sin. And you're like, oh, what? That's the worst. Why? I was so ready. I was so eager to murder this woman caught in adultery. I was so eager to throw stones at this person's life. And then I recognized the dirtiest dirtiness of my hands. The power has been removed from me. My weapons have been removed from me. I've been stripped of my strength. I've been stripped of it. I have no more weapons. I had to lay them down because of the dirtiness of my hands. I'm now sad. I'm grieving and I am mourning the loss of my strength apart from God. There's a reason why in context of this scripture, it says, look, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then it goes right into purification. Cleanse your hands. Cleanse them. You find your hands dirty, cleanse them. Don't act like everything is cool. Don't act. Don't act. This is not theater. Don't walk into this place acting like you're a 10 out of 10 Christian at that moment when you just recognized how dirty your hands were that morning. Don't act like your hands are clean when they're not. Don't act like there isn't something to be sad about when there is something to be sad about and to grieve with God. Don't act like everything is right here when it's not. This is deception. It is voluntary deception. And any and all deception in our life does not breed godliness, but it breeds everything that the enemy is because he's the father of lies. And any lie we believe, even when it's a convenient one that maintains our own strength, is still very much the fruit of the enemy. So embrace the inconvenient truth as you walk with God. That sometimes your hands are very dirty. Sometimes you are a sinner. And sometimes your hearts aren't pure. Sometimes my heart's not pure. And I get into worship and I'm like, oh. Or I get into time of prayer and I'm like, oh. And guys, I'm sad. Like I'm sad because I don't want that. And I grieve it. I grieve that that I was there. And you know, when when you do things, like when you sin, it talks about we make the whole... We make the Holy Spirit sad. We grieve the Holy Spirit. There's a sadness that's real when it comes to sin. And we ought not decline this sadness. In fact, we ought to let this sadness humble us. Because look what it says in 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. There is a cure and there is a recipe to this thing. The yes in your life 
from a place of recognizing, no, I don't want that sin. What's the yes in your life? Okay, I'm going to humble myself before the Lord because I know what my no is. I don't want that anymore. I don't want those dirty hands. I don't want that impure heart. I know what my no is, but now I know what my yes is as well. And it's that my yes is to humble myself before the Lord. It's to get on my face. It's to, it's to, to, to get on my knees and to say, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. I recognize the sin of my life. I recognize these places of brokenness and I'm actually mourning over it. This isn't just a recipe for how to deal with death in your life. This is a recipe for how to deal with failure, with brokenness, with bondage, with recognition of sin patterns in your life. This is, this is a recipe for how to relate to God in a time of steep, steep failure. You shall be comforted. You shall be comforted. Don't decline the comfort that God is trying to bring you in a place of mourning. Don't tell him or others you don't deserve it. Well, sure, but you're still going to get it. This was never about earning it. It really wasn't. So you could tell me all day long how bad your resume is and how much you don't deserve comfort from God. Sure, I'll believe you even. Hey, great job, great case. It would win in a court of law. Thankfully that this is not a court of law. Thankfully this is not about the law. Otherwise, yes, off with your head. Yes, off with my head, off with all of our heads. In a court of law, we're doomed. We're doomed. This is not a court of law, this is a court of grace. This is is a court of Jesus. And his blood is redemption. His blood is healing. And there's a comfort that comes from God in these places. Don't decline it until you make it through the sadness. Learn to have communion with God in a place of mourning, in a place of grief, in a place of failure and sadness, in a place where you've recognized your hands are dirty. It's the worst time to make false prophetic declarations about your nature. It is. When you recognize you're a sinner or your heart is impure or you're double-minded, don't start making false declarations. Don't start saying, hey, I'm single-minded. I am blessed and highly favored. My hands are clean. My heart is pure. No, no. It says grieve, mourn, and weep. Grieve, mourn, and weep. That is the response to recognition. That is the response to seeing the true, the true nature of where you're at. It's not to go, oh no, oh no, not on my watch, God. No, it's not time to stick your chest out and express the authority you have. It's time to cry and it's time to weep and it's time to mourn with God. It's time to meet with God in a place not of qualification and status, but in a place of defeat, in a place where you have nothing. You have nothing. You have nothing to offer yourself to get through that. What you need is grace from God. It's an interesting thing that says, you know, this this despair language is, is really interesting. This place of defeat is interesting. Psalms 23, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. 
I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David is giving language to this journey with God. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is an intimidating circumstance. I'm in a place where I feel like I'm surrounded. I'm in a place where I feel like I'm not qualified. What I'm going to do here is not subscribe to my own strengths and gifts, but I'm actually going to subscribe to the comfort that comes only from God's rod and staff. There's a reason why mourning and in these places of the valley of the shadow of death are humbling, and it's because your gifts and your strength are not sufficient for you to walk out the valley of the shadow of death. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. There's a trust in God that is so deeply important. There's a trust in God that can't be replaced by any other Christian attribute in these times of mourning, in these times of a valley of a shadow of death. We must allow these attributes of God to be infused in us in times of defeat, despair, and death. The next one on the list is verse 5, and it very much connects for me. It's, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek is a really awesome word that we don't use very often. Uh, a great way to understand it, if you study it out, it's basically taming the lion within. There is a, there is a, and I, I want to read this paragraph for you. I think it's really important. It's in the commentary for this verse. It says, meekness towards God is that disposition of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good. And therefore, without disputing or resisting, Gentleness or meekness is the opposite to self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. The gentle person is not occupied with self at all. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, not of the human will. So if you look at mourning, if you look at walking these things out in humility, if you look at meekness, you actually see a decline of self and an embrace of God. You see a decline of your own strengths and a decline of trusting your own abilities and strengths and emotional composition and your current form. You actually see that it's inviting you to decline yourself. This is a really important thing. You can see in a lot of other language in the Bible, right? Die to self, alive in Christ, pick up your cross daily. The journey with Jesus is actually just about a whole lot of us declining self. And it's really quite beautiful to see this journey fleshed out in the Beatitudes. And it's giving these highlight points of, okay, what does it look like to die to yourself and become alive in Christ? Well, it looks like being meek and you will inherit the earth where most of our human tendencies is to believe that ambition will cause a great inheritance or a great achievement or a great wealth. Many of us, most of us, in fact, most of humanity trusts in ambition more than it does God's provision. And I wish I could say this doesn't exist in the church, but it definitely does. And sometimes what we actually do is we take giving principles and we entice and we put a carrot out for people to give more, enticing their ambition to be wealthy. We say things like, hey, give. This person gave a car and they got five. Give a house. This person got five houses when they gave their house. 
And if we're not careful, what we begin to do is incentivize obedience to God. Here's the problem with incentivizing obedience is it's impure. In its very state, when we are only obedient to God because we get a carrot at the end of obedience, this is not relational loving obedience. This is ambitious obedience. And it's, it's a real bad habit we have in preaching too. We always try and kind of paint some kind of carrot reward for doing righteous and good things. Hey, don't lie, because in the long run, it's better for you. Hey, don't, and we kind of point it all out, right? Hey, don't have sex before marriage, because you won't get like STDs and like have a baby, and you don't want to do that. That'll ruin your life. And we start to like really paint these pictures that are dooming, or we start to paint these pictures that want to intent, entice and, and invite somebody to a righteous walk. And you're like, hey, it's better over here. There's a carrot. Our carrot's better than their carrot. Delayed gratification is better than immediate gratification. And we start having this argument over who's got the better carrot. And then when you introduce somebody to the real gospel, which is to die to yourself and become alive in Christ, you're like, wait a second, this isn't a very good incentive at all. Like real Christian living it shatters incentive-based ambition Christianity. In fact, ambitious Christianity will almost always, I'll just say, it'll always lose to the trials of this world. When the Job moments of our life hits, ambitious gospel will crumble in the face of loss. It will. And so if we continue to preach a prosperity gospel that has the carrot of things or money or goods or land or some kind of temporary thing, like that's the carrot for relationship and obedience with God? No, God is the carrot of our life. It's like, well, I can lose everything else because all of my value is in God. I don't have relationship with God because of all of the carrots he gives me. I have relationship with God because I love him and I'll love him if I have nothing. This is true gospel. This is true Jesus. The meek, they shall inherit the earth. Those who have sacrificed their ambition, who have put it in the ground and have simply made their life about simple obedience, walking it out with God, Whatever it looks like, whatever the cost, whatever the price, whatever it looks like, yeah, guys, God's going to bless you. And there's promises in the word that take place over blessing you financially when you give financially. I get all of those things. I just take a beef with us only giving because we're going to get a, a thing in return. To me, it's, it's, it's not pure giving to God. To me, it's not truly laying our lives down to God. It's like, hey, God, I've actually got a bill here for you and an invoice. You owe me some things. Here, he said, you, you, you know, give, you could test me in this. I, I know he said we could test him in it, but, but why? Why do you want to test him? Have you ever thought about this? I know he gave us permission, but you, I don't always do everything that I have permission to do. 
Like he gave me permission to test him in this. But why? Why test him? He's faithful, way beyond money. He's good, way beyond provision. Like, why do I want to test God? His will for my life, everything that he's got in my life, I'm stoked by because godliness with contentment is great gain. It's great gain. I know we have permission. I know we have permission to test him in this, but why? Why do we want to test him? Why don't we take our ambition, our desire for things, and why don't we yield them to Jesus? Why don't we tame this lion within that has cravings and has desire and that wants things and things and things? You know how we destroy material materialistic tendencies in Christianity? Is we give our life to God completely, including our cravings for things. Like you, you, you can't destroy materialistic desires and cravings without also having a yes to crave something else. Like, so you can say no to materialistic things, no to addictive shopaholic tendencies, no to wanting another this or wanting another that or wanting another position or more more power or more authority and more influence. Look, like the next verse here is verse 6. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Here's our yes. Here's our alternative craving. So instead of craving wealth, instead of craving money, prosperity, influence, fame, I heard a, a statistic about millennials that there's like a, a high percentage of millennials that want to be famous. You heard this? And it's probably in a lot of generations. But it's just really interesting. Like we crave fame. I've had some Christian people say like, can you pray for me to be famous so that I can use it for God? What? That's an that's an odd that's an odd prayer to me because I I usually pray for God's will to be done. And I don't know. I don't see many examples of the Bible talking about you needing to be famous for God to prosper. I've found zero actually. In fact, usually it's the opposite, I find. How about instead of fame, you get, you get martyred for Jesus? It's quite opposite. It's quite the opposite of fame. It's actually, usually they murder you when they really don't like you. So, so most of the famous people for Jesus in the Bible usually died for him. So are you telling me you want to be a martyr? we've got to allow God to illuminate the intentions of our heart. Why do you hunger for fame? Why do you have a thirst for clicks on your Instagram posts? Like, I know you're measuring how many likes you get from one to the next. Like, I know you're measuring how much comments you get from one to the next. Like, I know this is a reality, and I know what these social media platforms are programming and how they're approaching us. They're playing us like a fiddle. They know how we operate and think. They know how insecure and vain we are. They know how much we want to be loved. And it's playing us. They got the strings on our hearts and lives and attention and focus. 
I wish I could say that the Christian church was the most influential thing in the world. It's not even close. It's not even close. The most influential things in the world are typically whatever is trending on whatever social media platform is taking place at that time. Whatever artist is the manifestation of that, Billie Eilish or the other, or Taylor Swift, doesn't matter, male or female, it doesn't matter what industry. Typically, there's just a manifestation of whatever it is that craving in that generation wants. And usually it's not a, a beacon of godliness. Because we've tried to incentivize Christianity. We've tried to say, like, look, we can, we can give you the desires you have of this world. Jesus will give you your desires for this world. No. No, he will not. No, 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 he will not. I, and if this stops you from getting saved, if this stops you from following Jesus, you were never following Jesus in the first place. You were following a fake Jesus propped up to win people that don't want to get rid of their cravings for the things of this world. It's, it's, it's a con. And we shouldn't con people with the fake Jesus. We shouldn't do it. We should preach messages like Peter preached after the Holy Spirit came down in the upper room, which he told them to repent. He told them they murdered Jesus. Like this is the true gospel, is to speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus and say, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Surrender your ambition to God. Surrender all of the plans you have for yourself to succeed in this world. Surrender it to God. And all of your questions following that, like what will I do to eat? What will I do to breathe? What will I do to provide for my family? Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord that the steps that he orders for you will provide for your family, that they will be great for your kids, that they'll be great for your wife, that they'll be great for yourself. Like we really shouldn't worry about tomorrow. That much has been very clear in the, in the word. It's very clear. So we trust in the Lord and we choose to say no to the cravings of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Say no and say yes to a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Every morning, like hunger and thirst, hunger and thirst. There's a craving when you have a hunger and a thirst, right? Like I was so hungry when I went to a party the other day and I made it. I have like a rule for parties. When I go to a party, I try not to go hungry. Because it's really hard to love everyone before I eat. And I care so much less about everything anyone's saying until I'm not hungry anymore. And yeah, I know you guys are with me on this. Like, so I, I, try and go, I try and go not hungry. Because usually somebody always wants to have like this like idle time of no eating at the beginning of a party. What's up with that? <laughs> Just let me eat. <laughs> and everyone's going to be happier. I promise your party will be better <laughs> right when you let them eat. <laughs> they won't leave right away. They leave after you blow out the candles and right before you want to play spoons. Thank you for listening to The Mountain Podcast. The Mountain Church is located in Las Vegas, Nevada with services happening every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. If you'd like to know more about The Mountain Church, please visit us at themtnchurch.com or watch one of our services on YouTube. Again, thank you for tuning in.